Against all odds, writer Bas Timmers went on a trip to Latin America on September the 1st, 2020, in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. This is his story, The Long Road to Medellin. Chapter 15. Mothers of the Disappeared. It's the Manhattan of the Andes. Hundreds of high-rises in the swanky districts light up against the dark backdrop of the mountains. All around the Abura Valley, thousands of orange lights seem to vibrate in the streets of the poorer neighborhoods that are smashed against the ever steeper hills. There is no point in resisting the charming views of Medellin. The city embraces you and will not let you go again. The difference with Bogota is that we love our town. Leandro smiles his dental braces wide open into visibility. He is our tour guide in the Comuna 13 neighborhood. The 35-year-old dad of two sons didn't grow up here though. He is from Guatapé, the town two hours from Medellin that has become a major tourist attraction because of the steep El Peñón rock, which provides truly unique views of the archipelago of islands and peninsulas in the surrounding artificial lake. Leandro is of the generation whose youth was thoroughly annihilated by Colombia's violent recent history. Paramilitaries were ruling the country in the middle of the 90s. When Guatapé came close to the front line of the struggles with the military, insurgents told the locals to leave because they would take over the village. Like many others, they fled to Medellin to escape the violence and the unlawful and random killings. Colombia's second biggest city wasn't much safer though in those volatile days. Pablo Escobar had just been killed in the Los Olivas neighborhood. Leandro and the family ended up in the Comuna 13 barrio, in those days also ruled by paramilitaries. The police didn't show its face there. The drug gangs ruled the barrio, incurred tax and kept the infrastructure alive. Nonetheless, the hillside district, with its makeshift houses consisting of not much more than clay red big bricks and a thin roof, was still one of the most violent in the country, an achievement in its own right. Then came October 2002. The government decided to go hard on Comuna 13 as one of the first big crackdowns on the endemic violence. But they teamed up with paramilitaries who had their own agenda. Human rights wasn't on them. The battle left hundreds of civilians dead. And more than 400 people disappeared, tells Leandro. You still see these mother of, mothers of the disappeared looking for their sons. In the Museo Antioquia is a color picture of the operation. It's hard to believe the concrete and brick neighborhood of that photo is the same as current Comuna 13. The barrio recovered from the operation and from insanely high murder rates. Slowly street art started to appear on the grey walls. Hip-hop had always been around, but was now providing a means of living for the street dance groups and the rappers. Souvenir shops followed the construction of six escalators, draped in easily recognizable orange roofs, which finally made the higher parts of the Independencia part of Comuna 13 easier to reach, for locals and tourists alike.
In that sense, this comuna is exemplary for the rejuvenation of Medellin. New infrastructure, not only escalators, but also cable cars going deep into the hillsides, connected formerly remote communities to the rest of the city and provided a way in for curious tourists. La Trece, as people call it, is now safe for visitors, at least during daylight. There is a palpable excitement about what is happening here. Locals are proudly wearing Comuna 13 t-shirts. It's walking on a tight rope, sticking true to its hip-hop street culture roots, but at the same time making money from tourists. The youth here can finally earn money in legal ways, Leandro smiles again. And there are so many more plans for our city. Not that all the problems have been solved in the urban transformation of the past 10 to 15 years. The smile is extinguished. In the 90s and zeros we produced cocaine but didn't use it ourselves, he knows. The same can be said of the current situation. The number of addicts is growing everywhere. You will not see any other city with so many homeless people smoking crack on the street, or bazooka as we call it here. He didn't get through those first three decades of his life completely unscathed as well. One of his brothers got shot. He survived, but can't walk anymore. I don't know what happened exactly and I don't need to talk about it with him as well. The past is the past. That, my friends, is the educational part of this chapter. You might wonder why we are already in Medellin, but not celebrating the end of the journey yet. Easy enough. Medellin is intended to become my retreat for at least a month at the end of the trip to recover from and digest all my experiences. But I needed a quick teaser for a couple of days to check whether that was truly a good plan. Thus, here I am at the final destination, but not at the end of the road. Still with the ever-present travel stress, solving daily problems and taking decisions about the next steps. Book the smallest plane I ever used to take me to a remote beach next week. Booked hotels for the last two stations before hopefully returning here to the Abura Valley. It's a strange week. Not only because the end is near and these are truly the last decisions needed to be taken. For some weird reason, I started receiving a deluge of thank you messages through Instagram. Initially, I had feared to get a lot of criticism there for my decision to travel during the pandemic. It was probably my own insecurity or my own feelings of guilt that still hadn't completely been swept away. Because the reactions from the start had been supportive and admiring. I had come to call my daily updates lockdown vitamins. There is a fine line between irony and sarcasm. My guess was that that name stayed on the good side of the irony border. The messages this week underlined that. Only now I started to realize these pictures and videos were like short peeps into the outside world for my friends in quarantine or home office. It was an inspiring look and a reminder there was a world out there. A beacon of hope there were still people living life to the max. All right. Maybe I'm getting a bit carried away now, but it was obvious my messages had touched a nerve, had reactivated electrons in some people's memories of holidays past 
as a reminder that there was also going to be a life beyond the pandemic. It might have just shown them a new horizon. Digital channels were by any means a welcome parallel world, my lifeline to friends and family. I had never been a faithful regular caller to my mom before the pandemic. But as the sweetest 82-year-old was part of a high-risk category, she was alone at home for months. So a weekly call from her favorite, because only, son, all the way from Berlin was the least I could do. It was a tradition to be continued during the entire trip as well. It was good to see the pandemic at least brought some people closer together. With my football friends, I kept the tradition up to watch the games of our favorite team collectively in a Zoom call. With the core of that group and some of my best friends, there were calls almost every second week. It also kept me humble, at least I hope. Of course, I had worked and saved money for this trip all by myself, had taken risks to go travel during a pandemic. But the fact still was that I was extremely privileged to be doing this. The societies I was visiting were so poor they couldn't work to save the money to go on far-flung holidays. My friends in Europe were in eternal home office, making the best of it. And here I was, still living the dream. Thank you for listening to another chapter of The Long Road to Medellin, a book about traveling during the pandemic. If you want to read more travel stories by Bas Timmers about Latin America, visit IntoTheArmsOfAmerica.com.